Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Hey guys, Ready or Not 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it means the absolute world to have your support. What are you waiting for? Become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. Welcome to CounterPoints Friday. It's been sort of an earthquake of a day, of a 24-hour period in Washington, D.C. There's so much to get to. House Republicans are announcing, first, what they'll be doing in a new Congress now that they have officially won back the House of Representatives with a slim margin. Nancy Pelosi announced her retirement. We have so much to get to. Ryan, you were writing your book this week. I was. I also took a break to write a little bit for The Intercept as well. Mm. Um, but, but yes, uh, so... You'll, you'll have to catch me up a little bit. <laughs> I don't want to spoil anything. Yeah, don't, don't spoil anything. I heard, I heard Nancy Pelosi did something. We're just going to yeah. do this, and you're going to learn about the news yeah. of the week. as Because he was, he was holed up in a cabin, basically. Right. Unfortunately, the cabin had internet access, so I followed everything really closely. I pictured you with a quill. I wish. Just a I, quill dipping it I in wish. ink on parchment. Actually, yeah. it just hide, animal hide. The, you had killed the, the animals and needed their, exactly. their hides for paper. There was, there was a wood stove, so that was fun. That's, that's pretty close. Yeah. Well, let's start then with House Republicans. Uh, yeah, we got James Comer here. We've got right. Comer. So let's play A1, and then we're going to break down a little bit of what he said. We are releasing a report today that details what we have uncovered. We're also sending letters to the Biden administration officials and Biden family associates renewing our request for voluntary production of documents relevant to this investigation. This is an investigation of Joe Biden, the president of the United States, and why he lied to the American people about his knowledge and participation in his family's international business schemes. National security interests require the committee conduct investigation, and we will pursue all avenues, avenues that have long been ignored. Committee Republicans have uncovered evidence of federal crimes committed by and to the benefit of members of the president's family. These include Conspiracy or defrauding the United States, wire fraud, conspiracy to commit wire fraud, violation of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, violations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, violations of the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, tax evasion, money laundering, and conspiracy to commit money laundering. 
All right, so when you have a, a narrowly divided Congress, one of the major things that you can do, especially in a climate like this, where bipartisanship is fairly hopeless, bipartisan legislation, at least on big ticket items, is fairly hopeless, is oversight. And Republicans always knew that would be the case. So they've basically been preparing an oversight agenda for the last year. And one of the big ticket oversight items they're planning to do is look into what a lot of people people think of as a Hunter Biden scandal, but I think Comer in that clip was interesting. He twice said, this is not about Hunter Biden, this is about Joe Biden. That, I think, is very smart because there's plenty of evidence that Joe Biden is implicated in this. And to the extent that they're going to spend time I know a lot of people are questioning that decision to say, are you really doing much for the country investigating Hunter Biden? Well, the president of the United States, I think, is implicated in some very serious stuff here. Um, and, and so long as House Republicans emphasize that, if the media won't tell the public that this is really a Joe Biden scandal, they should emphasize yeah. that. On, on its merits, the the I was going to call it the Hunter Biden scandal. They want to call it the Joe Biden scandal. The Hunter Biden scandal is worth investigating. Like right. the, it, it is it is a case of a family member uh, tr- trading on his name, trading on his access to power to enrich himself. And there there are always questions to be asked when something like that happens. Who, who did you sell to? What did the person want? Did they get it? Was it illegal? Mm-hmm. Did it undermine U.S. national security? These are all important and interesting questions. What might they still be getting? What what now? If if they're still getting something, now now you're all of a sudden in the realm of relevance. Mm-hmm. The the from a political perspective, I think this is pitching you know squarely to the Republican base, and so for them to come out with their with their first one, like there are an, an enormous number of investigations they could have done, uh, something around the pandemic. They will be something doing something around that for lab sure. right? But the one that they put in the poll position is a signal of the one that they see as, you know, the one that they're going to put the most energy behind. That is their that is their top priority. Maybe there was, could have been something about the Biden White House's role in juicing uh, inflation. Maybe something about uh, their energy policy. Like you know, they've been the they were hammering reserve. on energy policy. Yeah. The, exactly. The reserve is all empty. Why did Biden do this for, for purely for political gain? Can they get emails that prove? You know that that emptied the strategic petroleum reserve just to like get a better result out of the midterms. Like there would there would be lots of these kind of broad based things that where they could be they could try to back up the the campaign themes that they ran on and try to hit people in the middle. This is more for the conservative audience. Hmm. I now I say that as somebody who actually believes that there is merit in this stuff. Right. But just politically speaking. It's in this cul-de-sac right now. Yeah, and it's funny because that's the—I wish we could both sit here and say the the primary audience for this is the American people because it is relevant and germane to our politics that the president of the United States is. And, and just to be clear about the implications, I know that a lot of the people on the left, their eyes roll back into the, the back of their heads when they hear the name Tony Bobulinski. Tony Bobulinski has plenty of knowledge of Hunter Biden's business Anti-Polish dealings. Anti-Polish prejudice, basically. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, his plenty of knowledge of— Hunter Biden's business dealings because he was involved in them, didn't really have any incentive to speak out on this and says the 10% from the big guy that came from that laptop, from that email, was referring to Joe Biden. But that's not all the evidence we have suggesting that Joe Biden was benefiting from Hunter Biden's relationship with CEFC, among other clients of Hunter Biden. But CEFC is a Chinese energy conglomerate. He was doing business with them, presumably, 
Well, Joe Biden was vice president. Um, he took the Air Force Two to Beijing with Joe Biden while he was vice president. We know he was trading on the name. That much is clear. We know that he was inviting plenty of people to meet with Joe Biden while he was vice president, whether they were Mexican lobbyists, uh, not lobbyists, whether they were Mexican clients, whether they were Ukrainian clients, whether they were Chinese clients. We know that this was intentional on Hunter Biden's behalf. And we know that Joe Biden lied about having no knowledge of any of this. So... All of that is to say, do I know whether Joe Biden is currently compromised by China? No. Do I have a lot of evidence in his China policy suggesting that he's personally getting any kickbacks or is too cozy with China? I, I don't know. I don't know that that's what they're going to find. What I think will be more interesting is whether Joe Biden was intentionally getting his bills paid by Hunter Biden's insane lobbying fees while he was vice president and after the time he was vice president. That's what I think's on right. the table. Which comes from that text message that he sent to, what was it, Ashley, his sister, who said something like, well, you know, at least I, I won't take half like like my dad did or something exactly. like that. Or maybe, it's, anyway. Uh, it's to his daughter. You know, uh, to his daughter. Yeah. Okay. So you, you know what would be an amazing move that would force the media to cover this? And here I'm giving more free consulting to the Republican Party. <laughs> I love Party. it when you do that. <laughs> Get pen and paper out because this is good stuff. <laughs> if, if they go up tomorrow and they're like, you know what? This is a matter of principle to us. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're going to explore the role of Jared Kushner. <laughs> in the Trump administration. Yeah. How did Jared Kushner get a $2 billion payout within weeks? How did Steve Mnuchin get hundreds of millions of dollars within weeks of, but forget Steve Mnuchin, that's right. small potatoes. How did Jared Kushner get $2 billion from Mohammed bin Salman when as, as Ken Klippenstein reported over at The Intercept, everybody who looked at his investment proposal was shocked at how shoddy it was. Mm -hmm. It's like, there's nothing here. Mm -hmm. and there didn't, but there didn't have to be anything there because what was there was what he had already delivered and what he was gonna deliver in the future. Even Saudi Arabia's investment advisors, not just the ones on Wall Street that laughed out, in Saudi Arabian uh, investment authority advisors were like, this is crazy. This is, not a, this is not a good investment. They got $2 billion anyway. Why? Mm -hmm. What happened? Mm -hmm. Like, what? Just let's hold some hearings. Let's, let's call some witnesses. And if you do that, first of all, the media would love that. But second of all, that then forces them to cover the other one. Right. Because now you look like you actually are principled. But if you are only talking about Hunter Biden, when for four years you had the Trump family treating the White House as a piggy bank, and you're not going to do any hearings about that, it makes it so easy for the media. And if I, whenever, whenever I talk to people on the left about this, like Hunter Biden, they're like, what about Donald Trump Jr.? What about... Uh, what about the, the Trump organization? Oh, and what about Jared Kushner? It's the same. And it, again, like it's easy for you and I to sit here and say this because we're journalists and a lot of journalists actually, I think, lack curiosity or even awareness that this is happening to the extent that it happens on the left. Um, I, the Hunter Biden story is as good an example as any. But all that is to say, Republicans have Mitch McConnell as their Senate minority leader, who someone who is clearly <laughs> and just obviously compromised by China. So when Democrats have 
failed to, you know, have any curiosity. Like they investigated Trump, they t- overturned every single rock, uh, you know, Ex- on the, throughout the but courts. But they didn't really go into those that financial stuff because that because then that would have been asking questions that might have had difficult answers on their side. On as their well. side, yeah. right? Yeah, I would love answers yeah. about Jared Kushner, and there are a lot of Republicans who would privately tell you they would love answers about Jared yeah, Kushner. I, I think that's why the impeachment was over, like the Ukraine phone call, rather than. Right. The, the broad-based corruption. Yeah. Like, oh, okay, yeah, he did do it like 50% worse, <laughs> but we kind of do it too, just a little bit more delicately. Lobbying is... Sophi- more, more sophisticatedly. This is the perfect window. Name trading, lobbying is the perfect window into the bipartisan corruption of Washington, D.C. It is absolutely equally 100% as bad on one side as it is on the other. It goes all the way to the top, and there's, it is it is as bad on one side as it is on the other. It's this true, a fundamental truth about Washington, D.C., because wherever there's money to be made, and there's money to be made with whomever has power, so as long as the American people keep voting for both Republicans and Democrats, Democrats at roughly 50%, there's going to be a lot of money going to one side or the other. So I agree with you, Ryan. I think it would be great if they wanted to look into Jared Kushner, but they are so deeply tied um, right now to Trump. They don't want to uh, offend Trump voters. They don't want to poke and prod. Trump voters don't like Kushner, do they? No, actually, they really Uh. don't. But Donald Trump would be pretty upset if uh, congressional Republicans started looking into his son-in-law because that could come back. I think the big guy might get a little more than 10% on that one. That big guy. I mean, listen, there's so many big guys. It's like we're in casino. (laughs) uh, The Democratic big guy selling himself short, probably. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move on to Nancy Pelosi. Uh, This is an earthquake in Washington, D.C., really. I mean, people knew it was coming, but weren't sure. It was one of those times in the news cycle, I felt today, where genuinely nobody knew how it was going to shake out. It kind of felt old school, whereas in the age of social media, there's so much dripping and dripping Mm -hmm. that you kind of get a good inclination of what's going to happen before it happens. But this time, Nancy Pelosi uh, came out today and said she was stepping down from her leadership position but remaining in Congress. Let's take a look at B1. My friends, no matter what title you all, my colleagues, have bestowed upon me, speaker, leader, whip, there is no greater official honor for me than to stand on this floor and to speak for the people of San Francisco. This I will continue to do as a member of the House, speaking for the people of San Francisco, serving the great state of California, and defending our Constitution. And with great confidence in our caucus, I will not seek re-election to Democratic leadership in the next Congress. For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. So she's stepping down from leadership, but she's going to remain in Congress representing San Francisco. Uh, so she'll sort of, yeah, be, maybe to be able to mentor this, the new leadership that's coming up behind her. But you're, That's what, charitable. What you were saying, what you were saying about the... Uh, uh, people didn't quite know. People expected, but didn't quite know. Reminded me of 2010. Though after Democrats got wiped out in the Tea Party wave of 2010, so that's the first time that she loses her speakership. The entire city is wondering: Is she going to stick around? A lot of people thought she, this is probably it for her. And the RNC like, ran a very heavy campaign. Fire Pelosi. Fire Pelosi. Fire Pelosi. Yes. So I was on paternity leave, and I get a call. Like, the speaker wants to do an interview. Oh, my gosh. Were you at HuffPost yeah. at the time? I was at HuffPost at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I get called in, do the interview. And I learned later that her staff had no idea whether she was going to stay or not. Mm. And it was driving them crazy. 
They're, try, they're trying to figure out, do I need a new job? Should, do we need to get a whip operation going? And, and she was being so mum about her future. They're like, let's get Ryan in here. <laughs> and he'll ask. They used you yeah, yeah, they to, told me, to mediate yes, their, in their, their office? Boss, their own boss to try to figure out Politics? from their own boss. Oh my gosh. And she wouldn't explicitly in the interview come out and say that she was staying, say, staying but she said, uh, I, I'm making a lot of calls. Uh, and I'm, I'm very pleased by what I'm hearing. Uh, there are a lot of people who are telling me that they want me to stay, and I'm going to continue to make those calls. Like it was, she, she made it 99% clear, and so I, I published that. It's like okay, and then it was off to the races. And she and she locked down support uh, very very quickly. It was only years later I learned that they literally had no idea what she was going to do, and the only way they could think to find out because she just wouldn't say was let's bring a reporter in here. You're the best person I could think of to ask about the legacy of Nancy Pelosi because you've covered this from, I think, a, a genuinely fair vantage point as opposed to the, the press really has always loved Nancy Pelosi. Does she get tough treatment sometimes? Yes. But if for evidence, read Molly Ball's book on how the, that's a great example of how the press in general treats Nancy Pelosi. Your experiences over the course of the last couple decades, Pelosi-wise, looking back now, she's stepping down. What's the legacy of Nancy Pelosi? Uh, well, I mean, Ob Obamacare would be would be her legacy, I think, because that, mm -hmm. that's the thing that she salvaged from complete wreckage. Like it's so great the, how we got the public the, option. Well, <laughs> she did get it through the House, actually. That's right, she did. Uh, but the fact that she used to do interviews uh, with me, mm -hmm. despite the fact that the Huffington Post was const constantly kind of hammering her, mm -hmm. Uh, shows the, the kind of amoral power player that she was, that people misunderstand how you get access in Washington. Access comes from, from power and from forcing people to have to talk to you uh, rather than uh, from being nice to them. Because if you're nice to them, then you, they don't have to talk to you anyway because you're just going to be nice to them anyway. Right. Or it comes from the staff needing to know <laughs> <laughs> whether or not job. she's going to run. <laughs> but, so there's this, there's this myth about Nancy Pelosi that uh, she was a housewife, She's from Baltimore. Her dad was a mayor. She's a housewife. Uh, her kids go off to college. Then she jumps into politics. That really obscures mm -hmm. you know, her, how political a person she was, like from the very beginning. Yeah. So, and her dad wasn't just mayor. Like her, this big Tommy Lissandro, De Lissandro. Uh, her grandfather. This that well that's that, and her you know, right her grandfather too. And her father, yeah. Uh, and her father was a New Deal congressman as well as then a big city boss in the 1940s and 50s, which meant, and I, got, and I looked at uh, his FBI file for my book, like a lot, lot of mob connections. Like yep. doesn't mean that he was part of the mob, but like publicly there are all sorts of, you know, mobs. Every major city, every major, every mayor of a big city back in the 40s and 50s, these machine mayors, like they had to deal with the mob. Let the alone Baltimore. Was, I mean, and especially, uh, an especially Italian American cities, hub, super industrial, sure. and like thriving at the yeah. time. So as a child, um, Nancy Pelosi, and her mother, because her, her mother was a, a piece of this machine as well. And so that's one way that she learned that like, oh, this is, this is for women too. <laughs> they, they would keep these lists and these, these files of, you know, who, who needed favors and who, you know, who was on the bad list. Like that, because that's, that's the kind of, the, both the good and the bad of a machine. That a, a machine that actually functions is going to deliver things for people. And in exchange, the public is going to keep reelecting them to office and overlook their corruption. Like that's the... That's the kind of bargain. Mm. Bargain broke down when the machines actually stopped delivering for people. Mm. People are like, oh, so now you're just corrupt? No, no, no. You want to do the corruption, you got to like, when I call you because I got a problem, my trash isn't getting picked up, you get my trash picked up. So she, she learned from a, a real party boss. 
And so people think of her as a California lib liberal. No, she's like a, a Baltimore boss. So when she goes over to California, uh, so she had she's been married to Paul for you know very since from very, from very early. They they both they move out to California, and uh, she meets this guy Phil Burton. You know yeah. Phil Burton. Yeah. The fight, and he, he's, there's this great book, uh, Rage for Justice, about Phil Burton. Just an incredible figure. He died, he died young uh, in 1983. Had he lived, I think the Democratic Party is a little bit different in the 80s and 90s. He, he probably would have been Speaker of the House. So they, they meet, and he sees this mansion that she lives in. What could we do with this? And he's like, this would be an incredible place for fundraisers. Right. She's like, you got it. And so she starts, by the 1970s, fundraising and meeting all of these power players. And Phil Burton, most powerful man in, in California at the time, be, rises to become one of the most powerful Democrats and calls himself a fighting liberal. What he means by that is he's kind of cutthroat, but he's also progressive. Mm -hmm. He basically pioneered gerrymandering. Like the, it goes back a couple hundred years, but he's the one that really brought it to scale. Uh, it didn't Elbridge Jerry. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. He even he's he was such a sicko. He even drew a district for his brother. So there were there were two. That's just being a good brother. Just being a good brother, uh, John. Uh, and so uh, he also pioneered the idea of raising tons of money and giving it to other members of Congress. Like that was new. Like today, that's how you rise up in the ranks in Congress. It's it's pathetic and it's sad and it's at the root of the rot in the system, mm -hmm. but the people, and Hakeem Jeffries is rising at the top, one thing he's really good at, raises a lot of money, distributes it to other members of Congress, buys their friendship, buys their loyalty, moves, moves way up. So he pioneered that. He also took on the Dixiecrats. Mm -hmm. like he was the one who really uh, kind of denuded their power in the 1960s and, and 70s, taking, taking on these kind of old racist, white, the white segregationist kind of wing. And so the whole time that's, that's she, she doesn't like to have him called her, her mentor. She's like, I don't need anybody to mentor me. That was her ally. Let's mm -hmm. call it call the ally. Yeah. Uh, so 1983, he dies suddenly. Uh, his wife takes over uh, for four years. She then dies fairly suddenly of, of but, but of cancer. She's in, in her deathbed and, uh, and she makes an endorsement. She's like, I want Nancy in, to, to take my seat. That's how it's told in all the stories. That and then she just walked into the seat. Not at all true. This was a very competitive primary, and she ran against this guy uh, Harry Britt. Oh, that's right. Who was who was appointed by Feinstein to replace Harvey Milk. Mm -hmm. People remember who Harvey Milk was. He was the kind of radical gay uh, council member who was murdered in. Or they don't call him council members in San Francisco. Whatever they call him out there, he was he's murdered, and Britt replaced him. So. And Britt was also uh, Dem Democratic Socialist of America member, vice chair uh, for the city. And so it was a, it was a true kind of establishment because she represented the kind of rich liberals in the, in the city. He represented uh, the socialists, um, the, the gay rights movement, uh, and, and the kind of radical element of San Francisco. And she, she won in a kind of, with like 35% of the vote to like 32% yeah, of the vote. Yeah, it was really close. And so everybody, and, and she's like, you know, don't, don't tell me about being progressive. I'm from San Francisco. And what, what people didn't understand is you, you won by beating the left. Mm -hmm. And so she's been, she's been fighting the left uh, while also understanding it because she's from, from, from San Francisco. I was going to say, I think the most interesting thing about Nancy Pelosi is in the tension that you mentioned earlier where you said 
people think of her as a San Francisco liberal, but she's a Baltimore Democrat. And I think what's most interesting about her is that she's both. She right. she started as one and really became the other. And she has to, if you're on the left, to her credit, she has been ahead of the curve on certain things um, that progressives champion. She has she knows where the political winds are blowing. And I think she also has fairly socially progressive values. It's a different story on other things, uh, but socially progressive values. And that's, I think, one of the most interesting through lines of Nancy Pelosi's career is that she, in terms of her legacy, and there will be buildings named after her in this city, believe me, um, and it'll happen soon, I'm sure, but she put muscle, even when she didn't want to, because she knew where where her bread was buttered and the political winds were blowing, she put muscle behind some progressive causes. In oh, Washington, D.C. Oh, for sure. Yeah. she As a Baltimore right, Democrat. Right, for sure. You she, combine those two things, power politics coming out of the old school Democratic Party with like progressivism, that's right. a, she, she's really been invaluable to that cause. Yeah, and, uh, and Burton too got a, got a ton done. I think he did uh, Social Security, a supplemental Social Security. Uh, you, you look through his list of accomplishments, minimum wage, like a ton of like really big, stuff that he was able to get through um, by being this like really cutthroat Machiavellian power player uh, who who, rem- who remembers like who who has done what yeah uh, well and you know Pelosi uh, just has this steel trap of a memory and members would say that sh- that nothing would get past her like so they they'd you'd be in some meeting and she'd be like oh hey Donna ah yeah you you voted uh, on that prescription drug amendment and uh, energy and commerce a couple weeks ago. And it, that was an interesting vote. And they're like, you were what? Like, how, like, how are you even watching? Like, mm-hmm. how, how do you remember that? Like, 435 members, 230, 40 Democrats, like, thousands of votes being cast every week. You're like, how, like, they felt like they could not get away with anything. And workaholism is something that is an, an underappreciated trait. Mm. Like, if, like, she basically never slept mm. um, and was just constantly on the phone. Um, you know, either either browbeating or or whispering sweet nothings, or you know, just you know, making sure that she had that she had everything in a row. We all laugh about how funny it's going to be to watch Kevin McCarthy kind of manage this this conference with just a, a handful of votes. She had like a three vote majority for a lot of this, and yeah. it wasn't even that funny. It was just like. She's just had everybody in line. Here's another interesting thing. So uh, Hakeem Jeffries is set to, it looks mm-hmm. like, we'll, we'll get into this, but is set you know, to- move, move to Hakeem Jeffries let's and talk, Democrats? Yeah, yeah, let's talk about Hakeem Jeffries. Um, so we can put B, I think this is B4 up on the screen. It's a tweet from Jake Sherman of Punchbowl. Clyburn ends up assistant Democrat leader. Uh, this is all, again, like that's, a, with all of these sort of dominoes falling, this is an earthquake in Democratic politics. This is a huge shakeup. Steny Hoyer, Nancy Pelosi's longtime love-hate relationship with Steny Hoyer goes back years they, they and years. They dated. They, they went on a date in, I know, in the 1950s. They, you couldn't write it. They interned for the same senator, Maryland senator. You, could, you um, couldn't write that stuff. Yeah, both Marylanders. And they have been a little hostile to each other since then. He, he was elected in like 81. She was elected in 87. And and she, he always, she was always sort of usurping him. Yeah. Right, and this goes back decades. Love to know what happened on the date because she's... You should have asked her yeah. about that. 
Well, uh, hopefully I'll get another interview. Good. Well, that's uh, she is, but she uh, doesn't answer. She does not entertain questions about that. Yeah, I'm sure she doesn't. Yeah. Um, but uh, so all that is to say, he Hakeem Jeffries. Not, is she that, won't even confirm that it, that a date happened. That's like a just that's just Washington lore. All right. Well, we do we do know they interned together, and they have beef. Yeah. Well, you can sort of fill in the blank there. So the thing about Nancy Pelosi. And I heard this described actually by Philip Wegman, who just before we started uh, talking here was on special report and, and mentioned that Nancy Pelosi, quote, had, had bent the institution to her will. And coming in, when you have new leadership coming in, they saw what Nancy Pelosi has done in the House over the last uh, half decade, just this most recent bid as, or this most recent tenure of speaker. And she absolutely has bent the institution to her will. She got rid of the motion to vacate, which is very controversial among Republicans right Recommit, now. Recommit, right? Uh, vacate is the one that almost got Boehner. She right. got rid of the motion to vacate? Yeah, and so I, there's a— I thought Republicans were trying to get rid of that. Republicans are trying to bring it bring back. Bring it back. Right. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, she, she booted people off committees, which Republicans see as a huge red line. Yeah. And the question they're gonna then— they're going to do it is themselves. The, do, yeah. does, does Hakeem Jeffries—and this is, by the way, coming from Nancy Pelosi, who is a little bit of both Baltimore Democrat and San Francisco liberal, <laughs> um, and, and who did put a lot of muscle into the January 6th committees and sort of n- neutering Trump's Republican Party over the last half decade. Um, so does Hakeem Jeffries step into this vacuum should this election go through as people expect it to? Does he step into this vacuum having learned from Nancy Pelosi? And Nancy Pelosi is going to remain in Congress, she said today. Another thing people didn't know whether it would be the case. Mm-hmm. What's their relationship like? One one thing that Pelosi has not been good at has been grooming, uh, and you know this is probably intentional, yep. know, but you know uh, grooming successors like Rahm Emanuel uh, stepped aside. Now I'm not saying I wanted these successors to take over. <laughs> right. Rahm, you know, Rahm Emanuel was somebody who he wanted to be Speaker of the House. He he gave up and left. Chris Van Hollen uh, wanted to be Speaker. He gave up and went to the went to the Senate. Tons tons of them just you know they're like you know what these people aren't going anywhere. So. Um, I'm just getting out of here. And so Hakeem is a, a relative latecomer on on the scene here. 10 years uh, into Congress, 52 years old. And also, like he was Joe Crowley's protege, mm. and Joe Crowley was her rival, rival, because Joe Crowley, when AOC beat him in 2018, was, was busy organizing a coalition to challenge her for speaker. Mm. And Hakeem was very much a part of that coalition and so but like I said she she's she's a she's a political player she's not going to hold that against people also Hakeem has it kind of locked up so in some ways it doesn't matter like she probably couldn't stop him if even if she wanted to I've seen a lot of people saying how are how are progressives you know allowing this to happen it's like they got beat and they right. got beat a long time ago like right. he, he it seems like he has the votes and there's, the there's, same thing happened with Kevin McCarthy this week. Right. Is Kevin McCarthy the ideal choice of the Freedom Caucus, which very much mirrors what the squad is on the left? Absolutely not. Uh, is is uh, is Tom Emmer, who's the head of the NRCC and really infuriated a bunch of people on the right, the ideal choice of the Freedom Caucus? No, but they got beat. Right. And so Jeffries, though, is not the is not the vote counter, the whip. Uh, the the kind of p- political power player uh, that Pelosi is now he has two years to try to try to figure it out. Uh, the big question for him is going to be: Will he continue to wage an open war on the kind of progressive flank mm-hmm. in the House? That, that's what's so remarkable about Jeffries becoming leader, and 
assuming he gets in without any opposition, that he he's in such an open war uh, with the left that he has he tweets about it publicly. He created an entire pack, the Team Team Blue pack. It's a priority for him that goes and plays in primaries against progressive Democrats, like when. Uh, uh, who was, oh, when Joyce Beatty won her primary in the 2020 cycle against a Justice Democrat-backed candidate, Morgan Harper, he did this huge spike of the football publicly. He was like, you, you, you're trying to come for us. We're gonna, we crushed you, mm. and then we're going we're gonna to crush you in, in New York. Uh, you know, Elliot Angle's next. We're, we're, we're going <laughs> to crush Jamal Bowman. Jamal Bowman actually ends up beating Elliot Angle, even though, he, he, you know, embarrassingly, Keem Jefferson called his shot and then lost. Uh, but Jamal Bowman today said that he's going to support Hakeem Jeffries for leader. How does that happen? Uh, well, f- one, personal relationships. Like, right. people underestimate the strength of those. Kevin McCarthy and Jim on, Jordan. On Capitol Hill. Right. Being, knowing, knowing somebody and liking them. And then you also don't know what people do for each other. Like, right. And, and not even in a corrupt way. Personal. Like, just, and, and just the vi- vibing together. Like it's like it matters. It, the house it runs on vibes. <laughs> house, the house runs partly on vibes. Well, it sure. has to to some extent. Right, and so like, why is he, why is he cool with uh, Jamal Bowman, but he's not cool with AOC? It's right. Somewhat significantly about vibes because right. their politics are, you know, pretty much identical. Jamal Bowman was asked, "What do you think of having two New Yorkers potentially in leadership today?" He said, "That'd be gangster." <laughs> the other one being Espayat, um, who would run, I think, the DPCC. Uh, who is uh, who represents kind of part of the Bronx and Manhattan? Um, so, it, right. So you have him in open war with the left, and the left supporting him for this leadership position. So then the question is, does he continue the war? And he's like, well, I, I smell weakness. That how pathetic is this? Mm-hmm. You know, I've, 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 I fight. I openly fight them, and they still won't stand up to me. So I might as well just steamroll them. Or does he say, I'm at the top now. I, I have to behave differently. Like I, I run this, ent- I, I run right. this entire party, and if I want to be speaker, I, I need everybody pulling together. That's what I'm so curious about because that's what Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy actually both have, and Nancy Pelosi has mm-hmm. it unlike anybody else, right? Like she, she really is in the history of American politics one of the people who has been able to combine like the power of the establishment with doing favors for right. the base and for the activist wing and the ideological wing of her party when she can and when she knew yeah. she had to. That's not to say like Nancy her, Pelosi is some sort of like virtuous um, beacon of, uh, you know, progressive charity. Like her <laughs> but, relationship with Ilhan Omar is a good example. Perfect Like she example. calls her immediately after she wins. Omar's like, I need a change in the house rules so that I can wear a head covering on the floor. Otherwise I won't be able to go onto the floor. She's like, I got it for you. She called her every week up until the election. She's like, I'm, go- I'm gonna get this done. Boom. She gets that done. And then w- when, uh, when she was uh, getting in trouble for the Benjamins and for the other stuff, she would call her and say, uh, look, we're gonna put out a statement. I, I know where your heart is. Here's, some, here's my advice on how you can stop getting caught up in your own axles like this. Right. Um, don't take this, don't take it personally, what we're gonna put out. Uh, and, and then invite, when Trump came after her, she called uh, Omar and invited her on a trip to Ghana, if mm-hmm. you remember this. They, so they went, you know, Pelosi and Omar and then a handful of others, and spends time with her. And so then when people are coming to Omar and saying, we need to, you know, overthrow Pelosi, uh, or, you know, we need to, or you need to challenge her on this, she's like, mm, 
We went to Ghana. She's like, she's had my back Vibes. when like, when, pe when people have been coming after me. Yeah. Well, yeah, and to some extent you're right. Like vibes is sort of a pejorative in this context, but yeah. really, truly, like it, it matters who people think that they can get the most out of. So, right. and, and if you want to bring stuff back to Minneapolis, exactly. having her on your side. Kevin McCarthy and Jim Jordan, the Jim Jordan sees Kevin McCarthy, they have a good relationship. Kevin McCarthy sees Jim Jordan as someone who can uh, just be an absolute bulldog on the oversight committee. Um, this is back in 2018. And Jim Jordan says, well, if I have a good relationship with Kevin McCarthy, that's good for the whole Freedom Caucus. Now, that causes internal quibbling, but is Hakeem Jeffries going to be somebody who steps into this these massive shoes of Nancy Pelosi, this, this legacy, um, and says, what I'm going to do is stop prioritizing my attempt to <laughs> quash the squad and the progressive movement and recognize that in order to advance the power of the party as a whole, it's a give and take, um, which is a very, like, that's a pivot from somebody whose priority is doing the opposite. And he's going to be pressured to do, to stay the course because he's extremely tied in uh, with, with APAC mm -hmm. and with the pro-Israel mm -hmm. lobby here in the United States, which their number one priority seems to be to annihilate the left wing of the Democratic Party. That is such and he a has, And he has worked in coordination with them against Summer Lee, against Donna Edwards, against others. It's a fault line right. that when you elevate him to this massive position of leadership could rupture into, as a, create a crater. Yeah, but the left wing of the Democratic Party is so small. It'd be like a pothole. I don't know. I mean, small, but AOC is extremely high profile and influential, as is Ilhan Omar. Rashida Tlaib is also very high profile and influential. Um, and we could do an entire segment on, on how Rashida Tlaib kind of got boxed out um, and, and have that conversation too. But we've no. been talking for a long time. We can move on to uh, the strike wave. That's right. Not quite a wave. Well, uh, a lot of strikes. There have been so many conversations about how to define a wave right. recently. Right. <laughs> that I don't know if we need to get into it because I think it's probably f fair to say this is one part of a larger strike wave over the course of the last year or so. Right. So let's put up, uh, what do we got, C1 here, Starbucks workers planning a strike, calling it Red Cup Day. Starbucks calls it Red Cup Day, right? Um, that they they give out, it's, it's one of oh, their Oh, they're striking on Red Cup Day. On Red Cup right. Day, right, when they hand out the red... Uh, reusable mugs. Shows to, how much I've been going to Starbucks lately. Right. Yeah. <laughs> to qualify customers. Um, so it's one of the busiest days of the year. And they're, again, this is... You can, 111 stores. Yeah, it's it's a lot of stores. And obviously this is part of a bigger thing that Starbucks has been dealing with, again, for a, a little over a year, probably 18 months. And Howard Schultz actually stepped back into the role as head of Starbucks after sort of flirting with a run for presidency oh, right. by going on the Goop podcast with Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> um, shockingly, that didn't work out. But um, he's he's back and he is trying to crush the unionization drive at Starbucks badly. So this probably doesn't make that any easier. Uh, well, you know, one of the things he's been doing has been closing some stores. Yep. You know, when, uh, in, you know, if, if they get uh, to, if, you know, if they're unionizing and, and they're kind of on the fault line of, uh, you know, making money or not making money, you know, where maybe you would keep it open. You're like, you know what? They got a union and they lost money the last three months. 
Let's get let's get rid of him. He's not messing around. Yeah, he he has come in with a very heavy hand and done some like really typical tactics. For instance, saying that sure we'll we'll do benefit we'll do more benefits. Oh yeah, Break, breaking all, breaking <laughs> all sorts of labor laws. To, like it's just explicitly saying like if you're not in a union and if you don't support a union, then you get X benefits. Mm-hmm. Like you cannot do that. Like that's right. that that's against the law. Right. He's just like okay, arrest me. Right. And the thing about Starbucks that's really interesting to me is I think of it in the context of the underemployment rate around the country, which I think affects a lot of Starbucks workers. Now, Starbucks has really good benefits in general. Mm -hmm. People have a lot of problems with the way that they're scheduled in different stores. They have a lot of problems now that the technology over the course of COVID, I mean, everybody is customizing their drinks to a freaking tea and mobile ordering them. And also, also customers have gotten so much worse. Yeah, customers. So this is, and this, this not is just not their, not their, their persnickety orders, but they're just jerks. Right. This to is a not Ryan that, and I just right. messing around. This is yeah. like the Washington Post followed Howard Schultz around on a tour of all of these different locations, and these big themes kept emerging when he was talking to workers. Customers have gotten worse. It's impossible for us to make these drinks as customized and as quickly. So he said, "All right, we can get some more. Um, we can get some more machines that'll help you do this." faster and it'll be easier for everyone and you can spend more time talking to customers and getting to know them is actually a thing he said because his original vision for Starbucks was that it would be kind of a community hub, that it would be this calming oasis <laughs> um, and a real sort of espresso experience. Um, he, he was inspired by the cafes of Italy um, to, to bring that to the United States and if you walk in near local Starbucks, I don't know if you experience that depending on where you are anymore, but he has really pulled out of the stock. Out all the stops to to quash the unionization, um, but his, his workers. I mean, again, like he's he he offers tuition, he offers health care, but there are still so many problems, and I think it's indicative of how hard it is um, in the sort of way that people our age. Um, you're an older millennial, I'm technically, old. right? I think I'm Gen X. You're, oh, you're Gen yeah. X. Okay, so young well, Gen X. That counts, though. Yeah. So young Gen Gen X and millennials have been conditioned to see their sort of career pathways, and what that looks like um, when you're 25 and in a really bad situation. It yeah. looks like getting screamed at, dealing with, uh, as Howard Schultz says, I don't think we're going to be able to keep our bathrooms open. That's a huge complaint that workers have. This I always reference the Jacobin story that said we're being asked to. Uh, function as untrained social workers. I mean, that's a huge, huge concern. Right. Yeah, and I think people just want to feel a sense of dignity while they're at work. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that is, I think, really driving the the unionization campaigns. They don't, they, and they, and they, I think they don't feel like they have protections too. If, you know, if, uh, if a customer complains, like let's lose, you you, you mess up a drink order, you're you're not as super polite to this super rude person as as you should have been. Mm. They complain that you're getting ducked and the manager's on you. Like they they want some protections up up against all these vicious forces that they're confronting. Because like, like like you said, people are still doing all of their online orders that they were doing during the pandemic, but people are also coming into the store, yet you have the same number of workers. So how's that work? I would love to know what Howard Schultz is like, how closely and Starbucks in general thinks about the ingredients that it uses in their their uh, food. And this is like industry wide. It wouldn't just be singling out Starbucks. But a huge reason that the American people are miserable is because of, frankly, what they're eating, like period. Um, and that's a 
a, a huge role is played in that by the executives who make these decisions. And, and Howard Schultz, I say that because in the Washington Post profile of him that was published last month, it's really interesting. He wants to turn all of the blame around from Starbucks to the culture at large. And there's absolutely truth that it's getting harder and harder to uh, work in the service industry in this this country that we're all a part of and in this culture that we're all, all a part of that is increasingly miserable. And again, that's not just us sitting in this nice studio and saying it. There's statistics that back up the fact that our happiness has been going down. Arthur Brooks has put these statistics together and you should go check them out. So it's of course going to get harder and harder for people in the service industry to exist in the service industry. And one of the ways that corporate executives can start dealing with that, they're just tinkering around the edges. That's all they want to do. They want to quash the unionization, throw some more like superficial benefits people's way and not deal with any of the fundamental issues because that would be a serious blow to their bottom line. God forbid. Right. And anybody who's watching this and who works in the service industry understands that. They don't need us telling them that. But if you don't work in it, stop taking your frustration out on people at Starbucks, at restaurants, at like, it just, it's, don't do it. Well, and like, that's they, the thing. they don't want to hear it either. Like they're, they're, they're not your problem. Right, right. And people are stressed. I mean, people are just stressed in the country. And that's what Howard Schultz came away from this listening tour with. And we can just quickly pop C2 up on the screen because I think it's relevant too, especially in that kind of broader context. 48,000 California academic workers strike for higher wages. So this is grad students um, all over California that are striking. They say they're making like, and and actually you see right there, we make about $23,000 a year. This is a quote from the story. And that's unlivable in many parts of California. That's from one of the, uh, a graduate student in the history department at uh, UC Santa Barbara who was talking to uh, Al Jazeera. That person is the recording secretary for the Santa Barbara branch of the UAW. Um, and that's one of the unions representing the uh, academic workers, which, you know, that's how that works out. But in this context, Ryan, you've probably covered a decent amount of uh, grad student unionization drives. I was actually in one. Oh, you are. Yes. All right. So, what do you what do you make of this? Uh, this is, I mean, that's like we said, tens of thousands of people in California right now. Yeah, I went to University of Maryland for for grad school, and we had an organizing drive. It ultimately failed, um, uh, but I had I think ninety eight percent card signers in in my school. I was in the public policy school, so I was pr- I was I was proud of that. Uh, it, it was it, it, and it was a lot of fun, uh, tr- like because you you could see how the different. Uh, like graduate students would respond to you. Like when I would be organizing history gr- grad students, I'd be getting a history <laughs> of the labor union. If I, would, if I was in the philosophy department, I'd be getting, you know, what is a union? You know, <laughs> what is solidarity? I just sign what a card. What is work? <laughs> when I was in chemistry, any of the sciences, the math, I would just explain it to them. And they'd be like, oh, like more power, better wages, uh, more protection. Okay. Yes. Right. The math works out. Yeah. The um, number. The numbers. Yes. They're like yes. We're we're for that. All you, all you basically had to do it, it would take five minutes on the on the hard sciences, chem side, all of that. The the literature people, the philosophy, the philosophers, just impossible. <laughs> just absolutely impossible. Right. Public policy. They're like yeah, fine. yeah, sure. Well, so, let's do that. So in California, they're saying they're, they're demanding a wage that's something over, I think it's like $54,000 a year, um, which again, like California is a stupidly expensive place yeah. to live. I mean, just stupidly expensive. It has driven the middle class out of California. And I think one of the reasons the, the strikes at these schools is interesting um, is because that's the policies of the sort of party that is a kind of a patron 
of organized labor in California. That, that The Democratic Party has made it extremely expensive to live in California because it's beholden the corporate interests in the same way that the Republican Party in California is beholden the corporate interests. Um, California is a, a corporatized, uh, almost dystopia in yeah. certain parts of it. And uh, again, like these, these broader forces, people are just like, well, why are these white collar unions popping up? And it's like, because you can't afford to live. Things are miserable. Yeah, yeah like you can't afford to Rent's live. Rent's too damn high. The rent is too damn high. All right. Uh, so F, we got a fun little FTX update. Ryan fun. is so excited about yeah. this because I, of the text message or the yes. DMs, the DMs. Yes. The, so uh, I heard, I've heard him called now Sam Bank Run Fraud, <laughs> which is pretty good. It's still SBF. So SBF, that's perfect. Sam Bank Run Fraud. Uh, the former CEO of F, FTX uh, did an interview with a reporter with, uh, at Vox, which uh, he, he was funding a future perfect, future something you know, section of, of Vox. We can put D1 yeah. up on the screen. The, the reporter was, um, <laughs> so, the, so the reporter uh, DM'd him to, uh, I had this up here to, so, yeah, to see. Yeah, Piper. And the, the part that I wanted to focus on, the, the, enti- the entire text exchange that she publishes is just absolutely extraordinary. This is a guy who was sitting in a beanbag in the Bahamas just just incriminating himself all up and down, like just in an incredible way. But he also indicted all of society with this one exchange. And so she's, she's asking him about his effective altruism and all, all of the like good works and all the talk that he was doing about making the world a better place and you know, you know, just wanting, wanting the best for, for everybody. That's really what he's, he's all about. And she's, she starts- Making <laughs> so, money to give away money. That's yeah, the effect she, of altruism. And she starts to see that he, he's like, she's like, so wait, so was, was all of this just a front? And he's like, yeah, it was a front. And then she asks him, she says, uh, she says, you were really good at talking about ethics for someone who kind of saw it as all a game with winners and losers. And he writes back, yeah, he, he, I had to be. It's what reputations are made of to some extent. I feel bad for those who get effed by it, by this dumb game we woke Westerners play where we say all the right shibboleths and so everyone likes us. Shut the hell up, dude. Seriously, because that's- Don't you want him exposing this? No, I, I mean, well, yes, of course, to that, right? But like, it is so incredibly shameless because he's also like exposing the people who aren't in on it, right? So how many times did the media, in fact, he's actually still scheduled to speak at a New York Times event this month uh, for like top thinkers, which I'm gonna talk about in my monologue. <laughs> but that's what's amazing, right? Is, is, is he understands what he was doing and he's exposing him himself as being completely shameless. But the media was covering him as though, he was on the cover of what Fortune, as though he was like, they, he was being talked of as JP Morgan, this guy that was snatching up mm-hmm. all the feelings and just like organizing and, and helping everyone save the industry basically. Um, and here he is saying these text messages, F regulators, they make everything worse. They don't protect customers at all. And so yeah, at the end of the day, he's exposing that it's basically all about money. It's a smokescreen to make more and more and more money, but we were told for how long that if you disagreed with effective altruism and what, what did he say in the West, the shibboleths that mm-hmm. we all have to um, abide by, which in this case is um, what, the, the full pantheon of like cultural leftism that you couldn't say a word against in 2020. If you did say a word against it, you were a bigot. You were a bad person. You, you weren't just a political disagreement. You were a bad person. And there were billions of dollars built on the 
back of that effort, and it has uh, gone a long way towards just utterly destroying the country. So while it's somewhat gratifying to watch him crumble, it's also just profoundly sad. And he's also an idiot. Do you know how many? (laughs) Do you know how many FDI and FDIC insured bank accounts have gone bust since the FDIC was created? Like zero. Mm -hmm. Like nobody who had money in an FDIC insured account since it was created after the new deal, during the new deal, has lost a single penny. Mm-hmm. So what do you mean regulators don't protect customers? Like, it's just idiotic. Like, well, you know that his father helped Elizabeth Warren write a, a tax bill. Like, he comes from a family of people who are politically and the, involved. And I think that's what, where he got a lot of his cachet. His, his yes. mother's Barbara Freed. Mm-hmm. And then obviously his dad is Bankman, mm-hmm. um, and both of them, in their own right, are very were uh, very well respected um, kind of rock star academics. Because academia is this weird hierarchical place too, uh, where you can rise up to like rock star status. And they had uh, the poignant part about this 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 last quote here, though, is by this dumb game we woke Westerners play, where we say all the right shibboleths, and so everyone likes us. His parents are effective altruists. Yes. Like they're the ones who taught him these shibboleths. And that part at the end where he says, everyone likes us, I thought of his parents and him, and him just being a child, wanting the approval and love of his parents. So he, so he speaks this like language that they've, that they've taught him. And then, it was, then that was the first time I ever kind of like felt like some pity on a human level. It's like, wow, what a wound. And your life. What a wounded, yeah, ever in my life. No, but for him. Right. Uh, like, a, what a wounded child. I thought when he said that of Elizabeth Holmes, immediately I thought of Elizabeth Holmes. Mm. Um, and actually another thing you can still see on the New York Times website for this deal book summit that, uh, uh, what's his name, Andrew Ross Sorkin has been involved with for years. They brag about some of their, their former speakers, and one of them is Adam Newman. Adam Newman, Elizabeth Holmes, Sam Bankman-Fried, you can go down the list, um, but these are people that the media feted. The media served them to us on a silver platter, did advertising for them, essentially, not being forced to do advertising for them, but uh, for their own purposes, the media boosted these these effective altruists, these people who said they were going to change the world um, and make money to to give the money back, and they were all doing this in the name of uh, the common good good, et cetera, et cetera. And all it was was an intentional deception. That's it. And effective altruism is an attempt to justify inequality, to say that the inequality exists, but it's a good thing because it's it's shepherding all of these resources to these people who have proven by the way that they have you know, fought and clawed their way to the top, that they are the most effective and the smartest people in society, and that they then have this obligation to distribute the money around, rather than we should collectively come together and say, you know what, how about a, on a much higher tax rate for these for these billionaires? And so yeah. they, they would say, actually, no, you need more, the billionaires like me need more money because I am going to be so good at distributing it. He actually distributed, or, or I don't know if we've gotten any of it, he distributed some of it to the Intercept. Yes. Like, <laughs> uh, we, we take foundation money. Yeah, and yeah, he's totally. got And he's got a foundation. Uh, it was relatively new. I don't know, even know if the first like check cleared. Mm-hmm. Um, before like the whole thing just, <laughs> crumbled. just, just completely crumbled and blows up. Yeah. So I assume that that's not coming. Well, it's a good yeah. example also though, because I don't think he expected to exert any pressure over the Intercept's coverage of crypto. I think. Or Vox's coverage of crypto, but I think it I was. I wonder, so I think, so 
it, he, what what the found the foundation focused on like pandemic stuff, and so what they did is they 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 were they were like you guys are doing great work on the NIH on EcoHealth yes. Alliance on Lab yes. Leak on pandemic stuff. Here's extra money to continue doing that that sort of work. So I think the people, obviously the people that the foundation hires, to go. To spend this money, yeah, like they, yeah. they they actually care about this, and they and they want that to happen. I think, I mean, clearly he doesn't believe in this stuff. Are, it's all yeah. it's all fake. I think his hope is that he just if he just spreads enough money exactly across the entire world, that if when he gets into some trouble, that he'll have his hooks in people, and they might be a little bit gentler on him. Now, you you fall like cataclysmically like this from grace, then your hooks are all yanked out. Well, also he clearly doesn't give a damn. As long right. as he's making money, he clearly didn't care. Um, right. And and that's the thing, like, because this was all a smokescreen, and he says right. it over and over again. All the dumb stuff I said. That's in one of these text messages, which you can go read the or d- DMs. You can go read them at Vox. He continued to go back and forth with this right. Vox journalist who had previously been writing a profile on him, so had an existing relationship. But when all of this is crumbling, he's just talking to this one reporter yeah. over direct messages. Right, um, and, and I think it is a longer game because a, everything. Every single piece that we wrote about him that ever mentioned him was negative. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, but I think he's okay with that. Like these these super rich people are okay with that because they're like because because they're trying to capture the entire system. Mm-hmm. And the small the little people are like criticizing them along the way, and they're like, oh, "That's fine." The one like broad point that I'll make here is people have done analyses on what are called super zips from the 1960s to I think the last time this was in Coming Apart must have been like 2012. And you can go and look at how people lived together in the same communities despite having like pretty dramatic income differences in the past and how they do it now. And it's a very big gulf between how we used to live and how we live now. And so people like Sam Bankman-Fried, the ultra-rich, really don't know regular people. And so his idea that he's just going to dress like an average Joe or Mark Zuckerberg's just going to dress like an average Joe, um, it's, it's always been sort of, I think it's kind of projection, right? That like I can pretend to be normal. I I can be normal um, in some way or another, but what they're doing is saying we're going to use our inequality to fix inequality, et cetera, et cetera, but they never want to do anything anything that actually would cut into like change the tax code let's say so you you can right. stop so you can stop cheating on your taxes like not cheating but you can stop gaming the the tax code in your But from favorite. their perspective if never. you're so good at gaming the tax code then you deserve that money and you're probably going to then spend it better than the government would. It's a, it's what Trump said to Hillary Clinton. He was like, right, he not, cheats on his taxes and he not, was like, that makes me smart. Makes <laughs> and the smart. difference between Donald Trump and Sam Bankman-Fried is that Donald Trump will it was say this, not just in DMs, but in a presidential debate where Sam, ba- Sam Bankman-Fried is out there talking about how he's just doing this for the greater good. Give right. me a break. And that's right. where you get people drawn to Donald Trump. Right, because we also know in, instinctively, intuitively, that all the people that are at these Met Galas and at these other, all, all the, the entire kind of gala circuit in New York City, they don't know what, they, they barely know what the like cause is for that dinner no. that, that, they're, that they're going to. Uh, just you know, another at Cipriani. Right. To how much, some of them like the opera, others are just, you're just supposed to pay for the opera. You just give the money to the opera. That's what you do. We're, this is one of the first where he just says it outright. The best I, it, example. It was just a front. The best example of that is the Black Lives Matter Global Foundation, which, if you are somebody who is a, a donor of multi millions of dollars, you would pause before giving that group money because they were 
opaque in ways right. that were sketchy from the very beginning, and that has now all crumbled. But they raked in tens of millions of dollars from people like Sam Bankman-Fried. I don't know if he gave specifically, but in 2020... I don't think he was rich enough by then. He, ju- he just... And that's the other reason he got so much media coverage. He was like, nobody buys a Bitcoin, turns it into $30 billion like overnight. Yeah. So the media is just going to be fascinated by that. And they're like, oh, and your parents are famous? Fascinated, but also like very favorable to it in a creepy Oh, and you're giving money way. to Democrats? Yeah. The one- and against progressive. Like, that, that's the thing. A lot of his money that he was spending for Democrats was in primaries against progressive Democrats. And, and Stoller has pointed out that his business partner was giving big to Republicans too. So this idea that they were, it, it was just all a Dem grift, I think is a little off the mark, although he definitely gave a lot of money to Democrats. Um, but the point is like, he does, like it, it's it's a virtue, this millions and millions of dollars that uh, empowered, I think some destructive forces in our culture was a smokescreen for corporatists to make an F ton of money, basically. Mm-hmm. Great. <laughs> now that we've uh, established that, let's move on to the DHS. This is an interesting story that actually hasn't got a ton of pickup. Um, we can put the, the first element up on the screen. That's for this E1. One. It's from Gizmodo, uh, which did a long report on another report that was released by or made public by Senator Ron Wyden recently. And this is the headline, Homeland Security admits it tried to manufacture fake terrorists for Trump. I think that oversells the story a little bit. I'm not sure that they were trying to manufacture fake terrorists so much as they were overstepping the boundaries of their authority to monitor um, and to monitor and sort of make a bigger claim about the security threat than actually existed. And that's not to say in, in 2020, there was a huge security threat in Portland. There's no downplaying that. DHS, though, seems, if you read this report, which I actually did because I got here a little er- earlier <laughs> today, which is unusual, um, and uh, too early, in fact, like an hour early, and read the entire report, um, you see that a, a sort of ill-equipped DHS is monitoring um, d- protesters who are not mm-hmm. implicated in, in violence in order to kind of have dossiers on, on people in Portland that summer. And so... Right. You know the book, Three Felonies a Day? No. So it's it's this book uh, by uh, a lawyer that the the point behind it is that uh, every person in America commits commits three felonies a day. Probably a slight exaggeration, Um, but maybe not because our our federal code is so expansive and so interlocking that— You're speaking my language. Just, yeah, that just (laughs) walking down the street uh, can— get you caught up in some type of federal code in in the hands of a creative federal prosecutor. That's why there's that famous saying that a, that a prosecutor could, you know, a good prosecutor could, in front of a grand jury could indict a ham sandwich. Right. And so now you have uh, a bunch of ham sandwiches running around Portland and Trump demanding <laughs> that they find these these terror groups because he if you remember at the time he's scaring the whole country about antifa 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 mm-hmm. that well you know, antifa is scaring the whole country about antifa because they were actually burning portland <laughs> yeah every night 50 to 100 of these kids would come out all dressed in black and like 
throw bricks through like the Bank of America window and they set like, the mayor's building on fire. They were setting fires. Like, like no, it's not cool at all. Like I, I and I, I would get beat up uh, by the I mean people by the lefties all the time because I would constantly be. Like, can you guys do something with some purpose here? Yeah. Uh, can you can you stop this? Like who are you doing this for? The autonomous. You're just zones, doing it for yourself. Th- those turned out to actually be very dangerous, and there were more than a dozen people by certain right. metrics that but, actually died that summer. Right. And, and I don't mean this. to belittle it. It's but it's still tiny. And every death is a tragedy. Yes, like, yes. Uh, although what we're seeing here, but it wasn't a nation. It wasn't a nationwide uprising. And, and if you read the report, what I think what we're seeing. Oh, I, I disagree with that um, because it did. It hits. Okay, well, for that month. So but yeah, that wasn't Antifa. Like the, they were that. They were at the things. And what what's frustrating about this is the same thing actually that we see it across intel- intelligence communities. And again, the intelligence community grift is a bipartisan one. We talked about that earlier in the show with lobbying, but it's the same thing. A lot of the uh, you know people in the intelligence community that abuse their power, they're both Democrats and Republicans. I think we've seen it more from people who tend to be Democrats in the last couple of years um, than what was on display during the Bush administration. And some Republicans were not open to hearing about how these were actual abuses of power. One of the things we see the FBI uh, consciously involved in right now is expanding the definitions mm-hmm. and expanding the the scope of inquiries in order to implicate more and more people, in order to monitor and to surveil more and more people, in order to have more power and more funding, et cetera, et cetera. What the DHS was doing here actually seems to fit that narrative pretty perfectly. So how how has the right been responding to this? Nothing. I mean, I, I haven't heard anything about it. And maybe that's because it's it's a, well, first of all, we know one. Uh, that's because there's double standards, obviously. Um, but secondly, probably because it's a minor concern in the scope of what the intelligence community is doing right now in terms of domestic terrorists and their classifications of domestic terrorists. Uh, but people like Rand Paul, I haven't seen if he said anything about that, you would think um, would, would have concerns about right. this as well. Right, because that, that's what the right has to do. If, if they're going to, again, going back to what we were talking about in the, in the first block with Kushner and Hunter Biden, if you're going to complain when they surveil and, and call you domestic terrorists, you got to got to do the same when it when it's when the shoe is on the other foot. And this is Trump's DHS. So I think a lot of people would say, you know, today there's too little focus on violent left wing rioters and still in Portland, for example. And so et cetera, et cetera. That's what that's for the hear. cops. The cops are just on strike out there. <laughs> it's At a, what point is the right going to be like, hey, guys, OK, enough. Like, get back to work. I don't know. We get that you were upset. You didn't like the way you were treated in 2020. It's like almost 2023 now. Like you're you're on salary. One of the unsung stories of last week is that a Republican was almost elected governor of Oregon. It's a very exasperated state and for some some good reason. But I'm with you. I mean, I, I think a consistent Republican Party would be upset about this, um, although I do think it's it's small in comparison to some of what we've seen in, in recent years. Um, it fits that same pattern, and it speaks to, I think, the the broad rot and a mindset, actually, that like Dwight Eisenhower and people were worried about forever as we were building up these apparatuses, like, mm-hmm. this power is going to be abused. Yeah. All right, Ryan, let's move on to your point for today. All right, so when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez upset Joe Crowley in the summer of 2018, the political environment on the left was drastically different than today's. The Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016 had brought together disparate progressive forces and merged them into something resembling a political movement. 
That energy buoyed AOC and what would come to be known as the squad and only grew stronger throughout 2019 and into the next presidential race where Sanders won the popular vote in the Iowa caucuses, finished on top in New Hampshire, and blew the other candidates out in Nevada, producing a meltdown among the party establishment and on cable news. The party brass recovered quickly, consolidated behind Joe Biden ahead of South Carolina, came from behind on Super Tuesday, and finished Sanders off. Over the next year, the ecosystem that came together increasingly organized around YouTube shows and podcasts began splintering off. Some followed Tulsi Gabbard as she drifted out of the party, while others worked to build an alternative to the Democratic Party, while others still gave up entirely on electoral politics. So at the start of her career, Twitter was a place where Ocasio-Cortez could, could be seen to be leading an army of supporters, but often today, it seems more like she's fighting off an army of critics from the left. Others in the progressive ecosystem who still support Ocasio-Cortez complain that she hasn't invested heavily enough in building infrastructure or supporting candidates early enough for it to matter. So I asked her about her relationship with the left in a recent interview for The Intercept podcast, Deconstructed, and here's the first clip of it. It's, it's interesting, so when the left was totally out of power from, say, like, you know, 2015 up through, I guess, you know, the election of the of the squad, that unity among kind of the national grassroots online left was was really strong. That yeah. that unity has really frayed. You, you can feel it on you can feel it online. What what do yeah. you what do you think brought that about and what do you think can be done to you know recharge it? Well, you know, again, I think um, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, it, it's one thing to be united in what's wrong, but it is a much more complicated, nuanced um, thing to navigate uncertainty. And so then once you have the responsibility of power, you have to make decisions on a daily basis about what to do with it. And um, and. That takes a lot of communication and, frankly, maturity and understanding and discussion. And I think sometimes, like, you know, the the, the responsibility of wielding power um, for people requires a lot of discussion and debate and also disagreement. And how we manage disagreements, if, if someone makes a mistake – it's not the same thing as someone selling out. Like there needs, there needs to be a differentiation between an individual decision and a record and a pattern. And, and so, you know, I think in the initial aftermath of gaining power, having to have these conversations require a lot of growth and it requires a lot of debate. And yeah, I mean, I think sometimes it's very easy to like, turn on each other and have people turn on each other and oftentimes mistake a disagreement with malintent or lack of character. Um, and so I think that that's kind of what we saw for a little bit, but I actually am also sensing a moving beyond that. Of course, much of that is still going to exist, but I actually do sense a growth in that. Like if you look at the growth in um, national DSA, for example, like, of course, these periods of growth can look messy, but actually public debate and struggle is what allows there to be the transparency 
and also trust necessary in decisions. And to be able to hash out these disagreements, but then understand that despite disagreements, a person may have made a decision, but it doesn't, there's a, you know, understanding when to draw the line between there being a difference of approach or a difference of strategy, even if it's one you vehemently disagree with, and a, and just like a, someone acting, like someone who's just like, not on our side. Those are two different things. And I think that there's a greater appreciation of that. I think that there is more movement building that's happening. And I think that that is evident with the enormous electoral gains that progressives are making down ballot. I mean, if you look at these state Senate seats that we are picking up in places like Georgia and other areas across the country, like this is nothing to sniff at. I really do think that we're building a bench and um, and that it's it's trending in the right direction. I think electorally, we are setting ourselves up for good things. Um, but yeah, I think online discourse is, you know, we can grow up like we can. And I don't mean that in a in a, you know, in an accusatorial way, but I think that we can become more sophisticated. I think, and I think that we are becoming more sophisticated, but it definitely takes growing pains. So I want to ask you, one, what, what you thought of that, but two, if you ever see parallels on the right with, uh, say, Tea Party or Freedom Caucus types who come under criticism from the much further right hmm. for going to Washington and becoming a giant sellout, how do they, how do they handle those criticisms. Yeah, there are definitely parallels there, but I thought that was really interesting because it sounded almost cathartic for her to have that conversation with a reporter because it's something that I think she really desperately wants people to understand that when you get to Washington, she's repeatedly saying, and you have the responsibility of power and you have to, on a daily basis, make decisions for the country and for your constituents, it changes your mindset and it changes the way that you approach some of these questions. Whereas activists genuinely, and I, I say this, like, have the luxury mm -hmm. of being able to have ideological purity on every bill, on every issue, because they're not the ones that are jockeying for a seat on the committee or a voice in X, Y, and Z. And I'm not saying that's the way the system's supposed to work, but it's interesting because when she said that quote, um, we can grow up I thought if I were an activist on the left, I'd actually be really offended by that mm -hmm. because the implication is that your uh, consistency, your ideological consistency is immature. What was interesting, though, about that quote is she seemed to be including herself mm -hmm. in that. She, she caught herself and seemed to be saying almost that, like, I'm trying to grow up, too. Like, I'm, I'm an activist bartender made my way into Congress and, hey, things are different here. And I know you've been a part of conversations like that about Medicare for all. Um, and mm -hmm. those are conversations that I think when you have the unfortunate um, daily job of seeing how the sausage gets made, you sort of know what people are doing and the system shouldn't work the, the way that it does, but it does. Um, and I think that's what she was getting at. And I think you've seen similar things happen um, when Marco Rubio joined the Gang of Eight. He comes in on the Tea Party wave, joins the Gang of uh, Eight on immigration, and just has his career almost 
decimated mm-hmm. um, for five years, and now he's you know very a very different senator than he was then. Um, but a, another just a good example um, uh, of how that can happen when you're somebody who's elevated by the activist wing and then comes here. Certainly, people come here and are outright corrupted all of the time. I, I actually asked her, uh, "Do you include yourself in that uh, in that we need to grow up?" Let's play play that second clip. When you say we, are, are you including yourself in that too? Or when you look back, are there any things that you think your critics got right? Like if, if I were trying to pinpoint one, I'd say uh, the Amazon warehouse fight that was, be, was being waged where they were trying to get a whole bunch of uh, support and, and didn't. Like if you had to do that over again, or, or are, are there any things that you would have done differently if you could do them over again? To try to like rebuild yeah, that communication I mean, and trust. Yeah, I mean, I guess like the thing is, is like, I think it's really about like intra left relationship, right? So like, if you look at that incident, I mean, now we're we're all good. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like that relationship, like we're cool. Like we dove in, and it wasn't just about like showing up at a press conference, like we have offered very, like we have offered infrastructure support, but there, there really is a difference between asking one person to be there for every single thing. And then when that, when they can't make it for one thing that like, it, oh, it must be because they abandoned mm-hmm. all principle. Like there's a difference between that and just like, Hey, okay. Yeah. Like, we like we missed it on this one because there were literally 800 other things that other fights that people were asking us to to take up and like okay but you know what we showed up and we're back together again and actually like the discourse of that moment is so out of step with the reality of what played out because we've continued to support um and and do everything we can to to you know make sure that that we're up on that and you know we're good now and so i think it there's a temptation and we have to be aware of the role that even algorithms play in this right like youtube twitter all of it is designed to make us fight with each other like that is rewarded algorithmically and so I think with the awareness of that, and it's not to say that we shouldn't ever, you know, we're better with sound criticism, but I think we really need to be grounded in strong citation and not just incitement of emotion. Like, like let's talk about um, having really thorough arguments to make each other better. Like that's what, that's what political struggle is all about and engaging in that, you know, with one another as a movement. I think she's right about the algorithms. We're up against a hard stop. Do you have like a 15 second thought? I just think it's fascinating. I mean, of course, people come here and have all kinds of issues with us, whether it's money or power or just, you know, trying to to do what you think is right, which is rare. Um, But that sounds to me like somebody who was elected in the social media generation understands social media um, and is dealing with challenges that are are different than really what what any other generation of uh, Congress has dealt with. Well, the full interview over at Deconstructed, we're going to have more in a minute. 
All right, Emily, so what's your point today? Well, it's been a hopeful week in Washington, like the dawn of springtime instead of creeping winter. Finally, finally, the Beltway thinks that American populism is beyond resuscitation. Donald Trump's sleepy presidential announcement landed with a thud while right populists faltered in the midterms. Ron DeSantis, according to Wall Street and Paul Ryan, presents a plausible and palatable alternative to Trumpism so the page can finally be turned. Well, no. They'd like the power to turn that page, sure, but they don't have it yet. I've said before that while I generally disdain politicians, period, uh, I am favorable to the argument for Ron DeSantis. It's hard to say where he lands on populist economics and foreign policy as of right now, although his willingness to throw a middle finger up at the most powerful company in his state was a promising sign. But what we do know is that American happiness is declining. We know wages are stagnant, that the rising tide of the stock market is not lifting all boats. Mental health is worth worse. Suicides are up and births are down. We know war and energy and personal technologies have us on the brink of crises. TVs are cheap and people are miserable. In other words, whether he stays or goes, populism isn't tied to the fate of Donald Trump or Blake Masters or even Bernie Sanders for that matter. It's here to stay because times are bad. Now, in the scope of human history, times should feel much better. We are freer, wealthier, and healthier, and more prosperous than most people who have ever lived. But we're also declining on many of those measures from one generation to another. When you ask people to choose between a traditional politician or someone who says the system is rigged and acts like it too, it's not irrational for them to throw their chips in with the guy willing to accurately diagnose the, pro the problem, even if he ha happens to be a cranky Vermonter or maybe even a reality TV show host. Remember when the chattering class salivated over J.D. Vance after the release of Hillbilly Elegy? They'll talk until they're blue in the face about the opioid crisis and income inequality and rural decay, but their solutions are either easy Band-Aids or trickle-down economics. They don't want to take hard stances or tough votes. They want to talk and tinker around the edges. That's pretty much exactly what Obamacare amounted to, for instance. What have Democrats and Republicans done with their power recently when they've had both houses of Congress and the presidency? A half-assed health care bill and a half-assed tax bill. Obama wanted a public option. Paul Ryan wanted taxes on postcards. You may say, sure, but this is a feature, not a bug, of Madison's checks and balance system. Well, that's true, but again, both those bills passed, not with divided government, but when one party had total control of Congress. We're paralyzed by institutional capture in government, media, and business, and our daily lives are worse because of those declines. Trump disrupted our politics in some good ways and in some really bad ones. But when elites gleefully cheer his demise, they're cheering for the demise of all of those disruptions, the good ones and the bad. They don't just want calmer news cycles. They want disempowered poor people, rural and urban. They want to monitor your expression and punish you when they disagree. They want a tax code that can be cheated, happy defense contractors and pharma executives and agricultural conglomerates. They want disproportionate control of the voting process, like Mark Zuckerberg. They want oligarchy with the veneer of republicanism. So the work of serious reform is left to less than serious politicians like Matt Gates because nobody else has the stomach for it. 
I believe that no member of Congress, by House rule, should be allowed to accept a donation for their campaign from a federal lobbyist or a federal political action committee. That money all has strings attached to it. And anybody who tries to tell you otherwise is lying. And when members take hundreds of thousands of dollars from lobbyists and PACs, they work for them more than they work for their constituents. And guess what? I intend to offer that amendment on the House floor in January, and I already have Democrats ready to vote for it, maybe even all of them. The second thing I would suggest is that if someone is a member of Congress, they should be prohibited from lobbying for life. Why is it so hard to say that you should choose one side or the other to be on? You're either in the lawmaking game or you're in the influence peddling game. And those who choose to be in the influence peddling game, go ahead, but you should sacrifice that when you get the privilege to represent 750,000 people. I intend to offer that amendment on January 3rd, and I expect that there will be Democrats voting for it. I will also introduce an amendment to have a ban on members of Congress trading individual stocks. How can we say that that is not something that dilutes our trust in markets and in governance when people are essentially able to bet on the outcomes that they have an ability to somewhat control? Uh, and I expect Democrats to vote for that. And finally, I would observe something that has really worked well in the state of Florida, a single subject rule. A bill coming to the floor should only deal with one subject. I was incensed as a freshman when I had to vote on the farm bill and whether or not to authorize war in Yemen in the same vote. And we could still have broad bills that relate to insurance or education or appropriations, but the notion that we lash all these things together does not serve our constituents and the American people. And I would expect, if we're in the majority, Democrats will vote for my amendment for a single subject rule. I don't want to hear a word from Pharma or from Kevin McCarthy or Hakeem Jeffries about populism or decay or divisions until they start talking like that, uh, because that's what it would take. Trump's boomer stop the steal BS, among other things, was harmful. If his third presidential bid fades, I hope that stuff fades with it. But unfortunately, we live in a low trust country and people who have the luxury of not following politics closely know they're being lied to and are right to believe little of what they hear. The irrational position is having high trust in our institutions right now. And what are those leading institutions doing? Well, they're gathering for the New York Times Deal Book Summit this month, sponsored by Accenture and Walmart and more. What's the summit, you may wonder? It's a gathering of, quote, today's most vital minds on a single stage. Naturally, that means the highest profile cronies of BlackRock and TikTok and Meta and the Fed, including Zelensky and Sam Bankman-Fried himself, are coming together under the banner of the paper of record. Surely they'll get some tough questions. There's no doubt Andrew Ross Sorkin will play the role of serious journalist as best he can. But he won't treat these folks like they should be in prison or stampeded out of polite society, which in a healthy country is exactly where some of them should be. I'm sure everyone will have all kinds of pleasant sentiments to share about unity and peace and healing our cultural wounds. But until they start talking more like Matt Gates did in that last clip and seriously take steps to relinquish some of their own power, they're only going to get more division and unrest and they'll deserve it too. A new bipartisan caucus is forming in Congress focused on the uh, treatment value, the therapeutic value of psychedelics. Uh, joining us now to talk about this new caucus uh, for the first time are two of the people that have helped 
to organize it. I want to welcome on here uh, John Lubecki, who is the uh, VP of Communications for Apollo Pact. Also, Marcus Capone, who's a co-founder and chairman of VETS, which stands for uh, Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions. Uh, both of you, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having Thanks for us. And so, John, can you talk a little bit about what, first of all, for people who are just watching this who aren't kind of hill rats, <laughs> what, what is a caucus, first of all, and what, what is this caucus going to be who's going to be in it? So a caucus, very simply, is a group of people in the House who all work on one thing. Uh, you've probably heard of, like, the mental health caucus. There's a veterans caucus. Uh, the biggest ones are the Democrat caucus and the Republican caucus. So some of them are very partisan. For example, the Republican and Democrat caucus. This is an entirely bipartisan caucus. There's two co-chairs, uh, retired Lieutenant General uh, Jack Bergman, who represents uh, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and Lou Correa, who is a congressman from California. Both of them uh, stated that the reason they joined is because it touched their family and they see how mental health is not just affected their personal families, but they see it in their communities as we all do. And they decided to come together and, you know, psychedelics, drug policy, these have typically been things on the left. It's great to see people like Jack Bergman step up from the, from the Republican side, as well as there, there's actually been a lot of interest by members. Um, we don't have a set list other than the two chairs because every Republican that wants to join has to go find a Democrat. Every Democrat who wants to join has to go find a Republican. So we've had several, you know, some Democrats and several Republicans show interest in this. And I spent a lot of today telling them, go find a Democrat, go find a Republican. Um, some of the people who've shown interest is uh, Andy Barr, Rutherford, Nancy Mace, um, Earl Blumenauer, on, uh, uh, you know, from the Democrat side. It's going to be interesting. And one of the best parts about this caucus is it's, it's got a very tight focus on advancing research, funding for research, removing barriers to research. And then when we that research is all done, making sure we have access to all those therapies. Yeah, Marcus, um, what are some of the... John just sort of got into it a little bit, but what are some of the big kind of ticket items that this caucus can help advance sort of immediately in a new Congress? We know the margin is going to be slim, which is great for bipartisan efforts um, and especially great for bipartisan efforts that have specific legislative items on their agenda. So what are you most hopeful for and, and what do you hope that they're, they're looking at right away come January? Well, I think the most important thing that uh, the public just needs to understand is that we're just trying to advance research in the field of psychedelic medicine. You know, I, I think, um, you know, in the 50s and 60s, uh, psychedelics got a very bad name because these were medicines that were used as recreational drugs. Um, we need to steer completely clear of that these are, you know, medicines that need to be applied with therapeutic use and medical application. Um, I think if everyone can wrap their head around these being medicines uh, that needs wraparound preparation, integration support. I think all of us can agree uh, when they're applied in a controlled environment, um, as we're starting to see in some of the research that are coming out, these are uh, medicines that provide true healing compared to some of the you know, current, uh, I guess, old treatment modalities that we've been using now for almost 35 years. 
Are you are you facing any opposition from the pharmaceutical industry, John, or uh, are are they still uh, seeing? Or are they still not threatened by the the kind of the rise of, of therapeutic psychedelics? Um, they're, or do they think not, they can get in on it? Yeah, I uh, I will say I think they they think they can get in on it. I mean, let's look at big pharma. A lot of what they do is they go buy companies who have new technologies. They don't really create new things themselves. They just go buy them. Um, so I do think that some of these companies may eventually be bought out by a Pfizer or a Merck, um, especially the for-profit companies. Uh, that may not happen. They've pretty much stayed out of it. They haven't invested their capital and their lobbying time and all of this. You know, we're not part of big pharma in, in any way. And they've stayed away from us. They know it's eventually coming, but it, there's also delays. But there is opposition. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, you, you had uh, you, were, you were talking on this show about some things that Jesse Waters had said on Fox News. And, and there's other pushback in part due to negative outcomes because these substances aren't always used in a therapeutic environment. They aren't always used in, in, you know, with proper integration, proper preparation, properly trained therapists and other people who, who can help people heal. And both of you can speak to this, but I'll start with you, Marcus, how it's uh, specifically beneficial to talk about the experience of veterans um, who are helped by these treatments. I mean, obviously, the evidence suggests a lot of people can benefit from these treatments. But I imagine, especially when you're going to members of Congress, being able to talk about the experience of, of vets has to be a powerful tool for advancing that cause more broadly. Yeah, it's extremely powerful. Um, you know, we've been, my wife and I uh, started VETS five years ago after, you know, my successful experience with uh, treatment uh, down in Mexico at a reputable retreat. Um, I had been on from that moment, I'd say seven years straight of antidepressants. And at one point I was taking up to 10 prescription medicines to include you know, medicines to focus, new vigil and pro vigil and antidepressants, uh, SSNR, excuse me, SSRIs, SNRIs, medicine to go to sleep. Um, the day I, or I'd say the, the week that I went to this retreat, I haven't touched an antidepressant or another pharmaceutical now in five years. The healing was so profound, we felt really uh, necessary that we had to pay it forward to um, my community, the, the SEAL community that was coming back from 20 years of sustained combat, um, you know, many of my friends uh, are struggling the same way I did, and we felt the need to pay it forward. And what we thought, uh, what we wanted to get 12 individuals the first year, I think we funded 35. And now to date, five years later, our nonprofit is funded at roughly 5,500 per individual, almost 700 other special operations veterans to receive the same treatment. And, uh, you know, these test the testimonies that we get are, are unbelievable. It makes us keep going. Uh, these medicines, again, as, you know, Jonathan pointed out, uh, done in a controlled environment, um, life-saving, life-changing. It's keeping families together. Uh, it's making individuals, uh, you know, connect back with their spouse, their loved ones, their children, and this is generational healing. And so we just need to continue on and do this smartly. Um, you know, we don't want another Timothy Leary moment uh, to happen. Marcus did, Marcus, did you say Ibogaine? Is that... I didn't say anything, but you did. Oh, 
Oh, okay. Uh, do, do you have any, uh, if, if people are, uh, you have to do this in Mexico or somewhere else. You can't do this in the United States. It's legal. Uh, yeah, we, we can't fund any, anybody where these medicines are not legal. So in, in countries where they're legal, um, certain medicines are legal in Mexico, some in Costa Rica and Peru, some in uh, some countries in Europe. And so we have to just have to be very careful. Uh, do you do you have any do you have any advice for people who are who are suffering who are who are trying to uh, search for medicines solutions outside of the country and to, so that they stay safe? What 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 are the ways that you can identify uh, facilities that are safe versus ones that are uh, just in it for a buck? Yeah, um, there's plenty out there, as you can imagine. Um, all of a sudden, there's a lot of uh, quote unquote you know pop up uh, medicinal shamans that all of a sudden think they they know what they're doing, but uh, you know, we're so early. This is, uh, you know, ground floor, even though um, there are, of course, uh, different communities that have been using these medicines for thousands of years, but they've, they've grown up, you know, using these medicines and individuals have to be really careful. I, you know, I definitely don't recommend, uh, you know, somebody just hopping on a plane and going to a random place and hoping, you know, they, they get a life-changing experience. I mean, we put a lot of effort a lot of research, uh, you know, we're using experts at a lot of the top medical institutions, Johns Hopkins and Stanford and Harvard and Mount Sinai to help us. Um, but it's so early on, we really need to see the research. You know, I wish I can say, uh, if you're really struggling, go hop in a plane and find one of these places, but it's not the way to do it. I think we have to be really careful um, because again, there are risks to these medicines uh, if done incorrectly. John, before we run, can you tell us, you know, there are a lot of causes that aren't able to organize to the degree that this one really is starting to. Um, and now with the addition of the story that Ryan and, and you guys broke here tonight, um, what does this add, this, the caucus, sort of what does it contribute to the momentum of the movement going forward? What does this mean for the movement overall? Well, the biggest thing is it's both sides coming together and, and having a voice and being able to push out and talk about one of the things I know the caucus is planning on is four briefings next year on various topics involving psychedelics to inform all members of Congress. Um, there'll eventually be legislation and, and you know amendments and other things. The biggest thing is this is the left and the right coming together saying, look, medical shows this amazing potential to change lives. We need to get you know, get the research done, get the answers we need and get people the help they need. Then we can deal with some of the other larger questions on spiritual use and, and, and other things. But this prevents things from going off the rails the way they did in the 70s that led to a backlash and all these things being made illegal and unavailable and unresearchable. Having a caucus, you know, led by, by people like Lou Correa and Jack Bergman with what they bring to the table, as well as some of these other people who have shown interest. It's the way to keep things on the straight and narrow and, and preventing, you know, as Marcus said, a Timothy Leary moment where everything goes off the rails. Everybody says, nope, stop it. Because the second that happens, I know I have friends that that's a death sentence for. I know Marcus has friends, the same thing. Mm. And I can't personally allow that to happen. Mm. And Marcus, about 20 years ago, I was a lobbyist, state-level lobbyist for medical marijuana. And one of the things that we had to overcome at the time was kind of the, the, the laugh factor, the chuckle factor. Like people didn't really 
take it take it seriously. Today, so many people know so many people who are you know cancer patients and others who are so who are seriously benefiting from it that that's 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 no longer an obstacle uh, for those those policy advances. What what kind of familiarity with the therapeutic value of psychedelics are you finding when you talk to people on the Hill? I'm curious both when it comes to staffers, but also when it comes mm. to, to members of Congress. Are they, have they heard enough about it yet from people close to them that they're, that they're taking it seriously? Or are you just, are you getting, or are you more often you just getting jokes? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. Um, definitely don't, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want to get in cannabis. I don't really, you know, I, I don't understand the, the, the cannabis fight, but I, I do understand the psychedelic medicine fight. Um, we're getting, we're seeing things across the board. So we are seeing um, individuals that have been hearing about the research. We definitely know there's a lot of staffers, I think, because they're younger and they might be connected to individuals that have been, um, you know, have attended these retreats or have done, say, you know, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy here in the in the states that is, you know, being used legally off-label um, in clinics. Um, there's definitely most of the uh, leaders, you know, on Capitol Hill have at least one degree of separation of an individual that has been in the military, that has served, that has come back, and that is struggling with mild traumatic brain injury or PTSD. Um, you know, many that we have talked to have taken their own lives. Others that are just really struggling with opioid or alcohol use disorder, and so you know they've been through the kind of Western medicine approach of uh, these antidepressants and mood stabilizers and brain clinics and talk therapy, it's just not working for a lot of us. And, you know, when you find something that is so healing, um, you know, you just want to be able to share and be able to introduce it to everybody else so they can also, you know, enjoy the life that, you know, I feel like I'm living right now and, and, and Jonathan and others. And so, you know, we'll do everything we can to, uh, you know, I think the biggest thing, we 100% need the science. That's going to happen. We know for a fact this won't happen without science and research. But we do need a lot of storytelling. A lot of these anecdotal stories are very real. Um, you know, my wife and I every day receive, you know, text messages and emails and say, hey, you know, you saved my life. You saved my family. Um, I, I don't know how much more you need uh, than, than seeing those. And it kind of what keeps us going every day. And so, um, you know, with the introduction of this caucus, uh, you know, the introduction from Dan Crenshaw with the NDAA uh, amendment that again, will hopefully release federal dollars to study these medicines more. I think we're on a really good track and in a really good place. And again, we just have to be careful and how we roll this out and make sure we're doing it uh, safe and, and uh, you know, to protect, uh, protect everyone. Well, Marcus and John, you guys are doing the Lord's work. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, and congratulations on the on the advent of this new caucus. Uh, thank you so much. Appreciate the time tonight. Yeah, hopefully, uh, they, they call it Noah's Ark on the hill. You know this, the, where they go two by two. <laughs> um, so if if you're going to come on, if you're going to join the caucus, you have to bring a bring a Democrat with you. And they're so they're they're trying to get people who are considered to be kind of moderates and yeah. so that it, it's something that gets taken seriously because if you could get 10, 20 folks on, on this caucus, like that, that's a swing block that can then go to McCarthy and say, look, you won our votes. Yep. 
then we, you know, we just want you to free up some, or, or just ease some of the laws yeah. that allow the funding to flow. You don't even have to, we're not even, you don't necessarily even need taxpayer money. Well, yeah, the importance of it is what you just said. It can be a swing block. So good yeah. for them for organizing. Like you said, they're doing the Lord's work. Yeah. Well, thanks for watching another CounterPoints Friday. I guess next week, uh, Thanksgiving. That's we're, right. We're going to uh, tape it a, a little bit early. Right. So there'll be, yeah. I believe, a Wednesday show yeah. next week. So we can send you to your families with plenty of fodder for yeah. a dinner table discussion. Yep, there you go. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> be, be, be well behaved. No, it doesn't, not everything has to be a fight. Well, right. we, we can give that advice next week. Maybe next week what we'll do is give our, our Thanksgiving throwdown how to, advice. How to pwn your uncle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. All right, well, every, have a great weekend, everybody. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.